Good morning. Everyone awake? So-so. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you. Looks like we've got a tremendous amount of our people out, probably with families and stuff like that. And if you're new to us today, we, we welcome you. Uh, you guys ready to study the Word? Huh? The most challenging thing for me, like every year, is what do you preach on Christmas? Obviously, you preach Jesus, but it's like how, what angle, what verse, what passage? And as I, as I was wrestling with that uh, this last week, God just made things so clear. And uh, uh, I think the reason why I was wrestling with it was because I was depending on myself. But God has made things pretty clear to me. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 4 this morning. You can turn over there. Got to give a little introduction before we get there. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 4. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 4. One last time. I'll be reading it in a little bit here. It's pretty obvious if you uh, watch the news or <laughs> just move to and fro and live that the world has been plunged into violence and war and forms of genocide in various countries and crime. Crime is just incredibly high in this nation. Uh, throughout the world, disease, despair, hatred, hunger, greed, poverty, perversion, um, adultery, addiction, fornication, fear, and death. All of those things are so present in, uh, in this world today and we mentioned it earlier and alluded to it earlier that uh, sin is at the root of these things. Sin is the cause of these things. Um, Colby touched on it earlier that through family time that sin entered the world long ago through the first people, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created by God in his own image and likeness for God. For his purposes, for his glory, to manage the earth for him, if you will. God told them to exercise, he commanded that they exercise dominion over the earth and to multiply and fill the earth with his image bearers that would who, who would do what? These image bearers would reflect his glory to one another, to creation, back to him. God gave them, as Colby mentioned earlier again, one rule. Just think of that for a moment. We have endless laws and rules in place today. We break them and we don't even realize it because there are so many of them. And they had just like total, almost total liberty and freedom to do as they pleased, to enjoy all that God had given them. They had just one rule. My house is filled with many, many rules. My kids are not allowed to do a lot of different things. And Adam and Eve had one thing in particular that they were not allowed to do and that was to not eat from the tree of the good or the knowledge of the good and evil if they broke that one rule they would die unilaterally spiritually and physically God also created Lucifer Lucifer was the basically the most beautiful and highest ranking angel in heaven rebelled against God. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. And he gathered one-third of the angels to himself and warred against God. 
But Lucifer and his angels were defeated and then cast out of heaven. The Bible says that Lucifer and his angels were thrown down to the earth, it says in Revelation 12, 3, 9. Mentioned in a few other places. Sin marred Lucifer became known as Satan or the devil. The devil entered the home of Adam and Eve, which was called the Garden of Eden. He entered their home with the intention of trying to lead them into sin and rebellion against God. The devil hates God. The devil will do anything and everything to harm God. And so he went after God's children and their future posterity. Do you have kids? We have parents in this room this morning. Your child was threatened or attacked or harmed in any way by an enemy. How would you feel about that? Would you be angry? Would you be sad at the damage? Would you feel vengeful? Would you try to defend them? Have you ever seen the movie Taken? Liam Neeson stopped at nothing to rescue his daughter from her kidnappers. The most surefire way to harm a parent is to harm their child. You can harm a parent all day, you can beat me, you can hit me with things, you can slander me, yeah, whatever. But it's different if you go after my kids. It's a game changer. And that was the devil's M.O., that was his plan, that was his motive. And after entering the home of Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, he came and tempted them to eat from the forbidden tree. Man, if I could just cause them to disobey what God had commanded, I could cause great bodily harm to them, who, God, who was loved by God, and I could cause harm to God. That was his motive, and sadly, they chose to obey the devil rather than God. And at the moment of their disobedience, sin entered the world and they died spiritually, becoming separated from God and their physical bodies began to age and decline for the first time ever. They eventually died physically just as God had promised. And they lived for many centuries, but they eventually died physically. And before they died physically, they bore children. The sin and death they brought upon themselves was then passed to their children and their children pass it to their children and so on and so forth right down the line to every generation and to all people. We are sinners today because of Adam and Eve. We are under the curse of death because of sin. But we certainly can't blame Adam and Eve or others for our sin, can we? We love our sin. But God, who is gracious and merciful, made a promise to Adam and Eve and to their posterity. In Genesis 3, God told the devil, the serpent, in the presence of Adam and Eve, that he would send a special person from Eve's offspring that would defeat him and his work. Crush his head is what the text says. According to the scriptures, this special person that would come through Eve's bloodline is known as Messiah. Or the Savior, that's how I will refer to him this morning. The Old Testament describes the Savior in many places. 
This morning I'd like to study Isaiah 61, 1 to 4. The book of Isaiah contains prophetic warnings and encouragements to the Israelites, God's people. At this point in Israel's history, uh, the Israelites were steeped in idolatry and facing judgment and discipline from God. Isaiah foretold that these people would be forcibly removed from the promised land, exiled to Babylon, and that Jerusalem and their glorious temple would be destroyed. That's sort of the background of our text. In chapter 61, Isaiah prophesied that in spite of their sin and deserved punishment, God still had future plans for them. His future plans include deliverance from Babylon, those would be more immediate, a return to the promised land, and total restoration in the Savior's everlasting kingdom. But the text is broader than that, the text that we'll be looking at. There are parallels in it. The Israelites represent all people, not just the Jewish people, but all people. Humanity itself, all people have gone astray and exchanged the Creator for idols. Humanity has been exiled to the kingdom of Satan, which is this fallen world. And humanity needs to be delivered by a Savior. The beauty of this passage that we'll be looking at is in how it describes the Savior of Israel and of the world, and then also aspects of his ministry. Now let's read it and pray, and then we'll get to work. Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 4. The Bible reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall rise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities the devastations of many generations. Lord, open our hearts and minds to your word now. Without the aid of the Holy Spirit, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we will not understand. We might hear, but we will not understand and understand in a way that is transformative. We have come in as a certain people with certain patterns and habits, the type of lifestyle that we live. And God, we pray that the Holy Spirit would take this word and bind it to us and change us, that we may leave different people, people who live for you in all ways, people who glorify you, 
Make your truth known to us this morning. Open our hearts to it. May we be focused. May we listen and apply. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Isaiah 61, 1 to 4. Exposition time. Let's break this passage down. It's a fantastic passage. I've read it a zillion times. I've never studied it. This is the first week that I've ever studied it. And I just thought it was phenomenal. The first thing we notice from the text is that the Savior... That's what this passage is about. It's a forecast of the Savior, if you will. The Savior, the first thing we notice is that the Savior will be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord God. We see it right there in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. What does it mean to be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord God? To be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord God means to have the very Spirit of God on you and within you. God would often place His Spirit on those that He used to accomplish His purposes and will. God put His Spirit on people like prophets. God put His Spirit on people like kings. The anointing, however, was always, in Old Testament terms, temporary. God would put his spirit on a king and have him carry out certain things or battles or missions or proclamations. And it's not like God would be mean and remove his spirit from the king, but he would put his spirit on these people for particular purposes. That doesn't mean when the spirit wasn't on them, they weren't anointed with the spirit in this special way, that they still didn't love God and worship God and serve God. They did. But God would put his spirit on people in a temporary fashion. That's part of the old covenant. It was a temporary thing. He would put his spirit on people you know, so that they could perform a special task. And so often in the Old Testament we read that God would remove his spirit from a particular person when they sinned against him. If you think in terms of King Saul, I've removed my spirit from King Saul. God put the spirit on King Saul. He served, he sinned, and God removed his spirit. But there is something Unique about the anointing of the Spirit in this particular passage in Isaiah 61.1. The anointing here in the original language is not temporary. It's not a momentary, temporary anointing. It is actually a continuous or permanent anointing according to the text. This means that the person of interest in this text... It means that the Savior, that's who we're talking about, is to be permanently anointed with the Spirit of the Lord God. And that means that he will be unlike all others before him. Isaiah 11.2 and Psalm 45.7 and John 1.32 and then in 3.24 of John as well, all speak of the special Permanent anointing of the Savior of Israel, Savior of the world. Same person. So what we have in our text is a special anointing on a special person. He's unlike anyone else. Now is there a purpose for this special anointing? Yes. Special anointing is given so that the Savior will be able to accomplish 
special tasks in a similar way to these past prophets and kings. Several are listed in the text. There are four in verse 1 and four in verse 2. So I'd like to identify and define each of them. Are you ready? Hopefully you're taking notes or you've got one heck of a memory. These things are in the text. The first thing we see is that the Savior will bring good news to the poor. What is the good news here in this particular text? What is the reference here? It is the good news that the Savior will win a decisive once and for all victory over sin, Satan, death, and hell. It is the good news that the Savior will bring about a new kingdom for his people where he will rule and reign in glory, love, peace, and order. Who are the poor that are mentioned here? He's anointed so that he can bring good news to who? The poor. Who are the poor? Who is Isaiah speaking about? The physically impoverished. You might be thinking, oh, come on, really? The physically impoverished? Yeah, absolutely, the physically impoverished. That is a direct reference. Poor in the text is a direct reference to those who do not have jack. Those who are poor, those who are impoverished, those who are hungry, those who are abused by the wealthy, and so on and so forth. The poor also represent the spiritually bankrupt, what we call the poor in spirit. Those who know that they or realize by the good grace of God that they're a sinner, that they're helpless, that they can't help themselves, that without God they're lost, eternally damned, stuck in the patterns of their lives, stuck in addiction, stuck in the things that cripple them, the sin. So poor is a twofold reference here. It does mean physically impoverished, and it does mean spiritually impoverished. And you must think in terms of how the Old Testament describes God's heart for the poor, even the physically poor. God has a heart for the poor. In fact, God established the first system of welfare, leaving behind some of the crops that the Israelites would you know, harvest and leave some of those things behind for the poor so that they could come glean in the fields. Think of uh, Ruth. God has a huge heart for the physically poor. He has a, obviously a heart for the spiritually poor. And the point here is that when the Savior, the anointed Savior comes and proclaims the good news to the poor, many of them will hear the Savior's message and receive it as good news. They'll hear what he's saying and they'll say, man, that's good news because my situation stinks. I could put my hope in him because the world has failed me. My flesh has failed me. Or what have you. I'm oppressed. And he's saying there's good news. Hope will well up in the poor as they listen to him proclaim the good news, the gospel, if you will. Because in the Savior's kingdom, 
every member is wealthy beyond measure because they have received the most precious and priceless inheritance in the known universe. Heaven? No. God himself. You can't get better than that. To have God as Father, to have God as God, God is Almighty. There's nothing better. There's nothing greater. There's nothing wealthier. There's nothing beyond that. And see, this is the good news that the Savior would proclaim. These kinds of things. Is it broader than this? Absolutely. Do we have time to cover it all? Not at all. The second thing we see is the Savior will bind up the brokenhearted. You can see it there in your Bible, can't you? Verse 1. The Savior will bind up the brokenhearted. What does that mean? It means the Savior will draw to himself brokenhearted people through his preaching. The brokenhearted are those who have been crushed by the weight of sin, crushed by guilt, shame, crushed by failure, crushed by loss, crushed by sickness. Crushed by despair, hopelessness, abuse, injustice, poverty, and so on and so forth. His message will draw these kinds of folks, these kinds of people to him. Those who are broken hearted. They will come to him. They will cling to him. They will believe in him. They will trust him, they will depend on him, they will live for him, and guess what? They will even die for him. That's how powerful and profound his message will be. Number three, the Savior will proclaim liberty to the captives. I love that. It's right there in your Bible. He'll proclaim liberty to the captives. The Savior's good news message is a message of freedom to those who are held captive to sin, the flesh, the devil, and to the world. These things are an imprisonment. And the devil is like a warden who holds the key to our cell. The devil has guards everywhere, his minions, demons, to prevent us from escaping. Our own depravity dissuades us from even pondering escape. We're fallen creatures. And when we hear the gospel, we repel it. Our depravity repels it. We don't want to respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. We are bound and utterly hopeless. But the Savior will proclaim liberty from sin. Liberty from the flesh, freedom from the devil, freedom from the world. And all that it teaches and believes and holds to and values and clings to and proclaims. But the Savior will not only proclaim this liberty, he will actually come and smash down the bars. Isn't that good news? He's not going to just say some good stuff. He's going to take physical action. And that leads us to four. The Savior will open the prison to those who are 
bound. He'll proclaim and open. The Savior will destroy the power of sin. The Savior will destroy the power of the devil. The Savior will destroy the power of death. Oh, death, oh, death, where is thou staying? You know the passage. And the Savior will destroy the message and allure of the world. He will rip the bars from the prison cells and set the captives free. He will free those who are bound. It's all right there in your text. These are the things that the Savior will do. Now let's identify and define the four from verse two. Ever looked at this text like this before? Pretty cool, huh? It's right there. I mean, it's not my sermon that's cool. It's the way God's laid it out. I was just like, what? These things are right here. I love it. Next four from verse two. I'll just start at number one. The Savior will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you see it in your Bible? He will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This favor, this is a reference to what is called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, the Israelites would, you know, have to celebrate this year of Jubilee and they would cancel the money debts of their debtors. And if I owed, you know, Jimmy 20 bucks, Jimmy would let me off the hook every 50 years. I'd, it's a long time to be, you know, in debt to Jimmy, if you will, 50 years. But, but you know, it would release people of their debts and, and they would give back lands and properties that they took from those who owed them. Like, man, if you can't pay the 20 bucks, I got to take your vineyard. Well, every 50 years, they were required to give these things back to those who were indebted to them. They would also, which is amazing and astonishing, they would also set their slaves free if the slaves wanted to be freed indeed. A slave could choose to stay if they had family there and had built a life in that household. Pretty amazing stuff. This is a reference to that year of Jubilee. The Savior, however, will proclaim a special jubilee of God's grace and favor where he will cancel sinners' debts and free sinners from slavery to sin. That's the parallel. Pretty amazing, huh? The second thing we see in verse 2 is the Savior will proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. The Savior will not only announce and usher in the jubilee of God's grace, but he will also warn of the coming judgment and wrath of God against all his enemies. The Savior will proclaim liberty and repentance. Not just liberty, not just freedom, but there's a way to receive the liberty and freedom, and that would be through repentance, to turn from your current life. The Savior will come and proclaim liberty and repentance. Why? Because there is a day appointed where God will judge the world. Those who received liberty and freedom from the Savior will escape his judgment. Those who reject the Savior will face and experience God's judgment on judgment day. And as I said, the Savior will add a stipulation to the liberty that he will offer. And that stipulation is repentance. Repentance means to realize that you're a sinner, to realize that you cannot save yourself, to realize that only the Savior can save you, and 
You must turn to him. You cannot rely on yourself any longer. Number three, the Savior will comfort all who mourn. It's right there. This has to do with comforting those who become spiritually broken in response to their sin and response to the knowledge of God's wrath and judgment against them. Do you notice how comforting those who mourn follows the proclamation of the day of judgment? When people hear that, they're going to be shattered. And what, the Savior's going to be there to kick them in the face again? No, he's going to be there to comfort them, those who are broken over this reality. The Savior will comfort those who mourn their sin. In the Savior's kingdom to come, there will be no mourning, however. All of his people, those from every tribe and tongue, will be comforted by his love, peace, and presence. And so that's a promise that the Savior will make too. Faith in me, trusting me, following me. I'm going to take care of you. I will comfort you. So he's going to comfort all who mourn. And all there is, it says all. It doesn't mean just these people or that people. It means all types of people. Not just Jewish people, but Gentile people. French people. All. All types. And then four. And this one's a long one. Because it's basically the whole rest of the text. Almost all of it. What else will the Savior do? He will grant to those who mourn in Zion... To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now this is a special promise given to the Jews. The Savior will comfort all, to some degree, all types of people, but there is a special promise promise to the Jews here in comfort. The Savior will grant to them three things that we see right there in the text. A, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. In typical Jewish fashion when they mourned over the loss or of someone or their sin or these things, they would cover their bodies and heads with ashes. Put on sackcloth, maybe you've heard of that, and, and heap ashes on their heads. What's he say here? At some time in the future, instead of ashes, you're going to be wearing a beautiful headdress. Israel people, Israelites. B, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. They're going to have glad and cheerful hearts. The Savior will give them this. C, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Almost has to do with this idea of having a timid, faint spirit here. But they'll have a garment of praise instead. They'll be praising God instead of wondering, worrying, being faint in their hearts. Now, why are these things granted? Why is the Savior going to give these to those who mourn in Zion, the Jews? So that they will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. That's why he changes their disposition and hearts and rescues and saves them and does what he does. And then in verse 4, Isaiah gives a prophetic picture of the ministry of the Savior, the ministry that the Savior will give to them, to the, those who mourn in Zion. 
What does it say in 4? It says, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Man, they got a ministry coming here. This verse has to do with the restoration of the promised land. But more than that, it has to do with the restoration of creation. The oaks of righteousness will partake in this multi-stage restoration. This is pretty amazing. In light of all of these amazing things, the Savior will do and accomplish, achieve... How badly does Israel and the world need this person today? Think again about the condition of our world. Think about the situation in Syria. Think about Iran and its pursuit of nuclear weapons. It wants to destroy and annihilate Israel. Think of Pastor Saeed. Think of the Philippines, what just took place there. Think of the 4,100 men, women, and children who die of starvation every day in this world. 4,100. Think of the state of our own country and the divisions in politics and in our government. No one can get along. never seen anything like this in my 44 years I don't think where are we headed we can't get anything done together with anyone think of Claire Esther Davis who was just shot in the face at Arapahoe High and died she just died think of Damien Villa Vincenzo, who was shot to death behind the Velvet Grill a week ago. That kid came up in my youth ministry when I was pastoring in Big Valley. I loved him. Think of the children and teachers who were gunned down at Sandy Hook a year ago, one year ago. Think of the 50 million babies that have been aborted. Since 1969, 50 million babies slaughtered. Again, how badly does the world need this Savior that we've been talking about today? Now turn over to Luke 2.11. Luke 2.11. Luke 2.11. Let's read it out loud. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Do you know what that text means? It means that God already sent the Savior. It means that the Savior has come. And this is what Christmas is all about. We celebrate 
the Savior's entrance into our world. That's what Christmas is about. This long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, the one who can change the world. In light of all of these things that are happening and going on in our world, in Israel and the state of our own country, he's already come. Now turn over to Luke 4, 16 to 22. This is absolutely amazing. Luke 4, 16 to 22. You just have to shift over a couple of pages. Luke 4, 16 to 22. And it says this, And he, speaking of Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. What does it say? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set a liberty uh, to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And right here he's got everyone's attention. What's it say? And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were waiting to see what Jesus from Nazareth of Nazareth was going to say. And he began to say to them, what, friends? Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Hallelujah. Jesus recited the same passage we've been studying with the exception of half of verses 2b through 4. He didn't cite those. But not only did he recite our main text, but he boldly declared that the prophecies of Isaiah 61 are fulfilled in him. Now think about this. Think about the person of Jesus. For those of you who have studied the Bible a bit and read it, what happened at his baptism, John 1.32, you don't have to turn there, just track with me. John 1.32, I'll put this transcript up. You can get all the references later on the website. John 1.32, and John, this is John the Baptist, bore witness. What did he say of Jesus? He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. The key is, it came and it remained. What does that mean? Jesus is the one who received the permanent anointing, as mentioned in Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit came and it remained on him. Jesus is therefore the Savior. Now, what about the preaching and ministry of Jesus do those things that he did, do they square with Isaiah 61, 1 to 4? Absolutely, friends. Absolutely. Check this out. Jesus brought good news to the poor. 
Matthew 9, 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. Guess who lived in cities? People with money. Guess who lived in villages? People without money. That was the social status of the time. That's what it was like. That was the social climate. If you lived in cities, you had a few bucks. If you lived in villages, you had very little bucks. Jesus went through all the cities and what? Villages. Who's in villages? Poor people teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news. Look at that. He brought good news. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. What did Jesus do? He brought good news to the poor, just as it says in Isaiah 61.1. He was anointed with the Spirit permanently. The Spirit remained, as John the Baptist testified. We have it right in our scripture. And he brought good news to the poor. Are there other references to this? Absolutely. How about Jesus? Did you bind up the brokenhearted? Most certainly. Matthew 11.28-30. to 30. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, what did Jesus say? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who needs rest here? Those who are beaten down by life, those who are brokenhearted by a failure, those who are let down by their sin, those who are oppressed, those whose hearts are crushed. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, who are emotionally distressed, if you will, who are spiritually distressed, who are brokenhearted. I will what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for your hearts, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus bound up the brokenhearted. And Jesus also proclaimed liberty to the captives. John 8, 32, 34, and 36. Jesus said in 32, the truth will set you free. Talking liberty here to captives. The truth will set you free. In verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, speaking to the captives, the truth will set you free. Those who are bound in sin and a slave to sin is what he says in 36. Listen to this. If the Son sets you free in the same context, if the Son, Jesus Christ, sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus proclaimed liberty to the captives. Not only did he proclaim liberty, but he freed the captives. He freed captives. Colossians 2.15, he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Not just I'm proclaiming liberty, it's for the reason of, and purpose of freedom that Christ has set us free by the power of his gospel. For freedom Christ has set us free, Galatians 5.1. Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I have the keys of death in Hades. You're imprisoned, I've taken the keys from the prison warden. I have the keys of death in Hades. Jesus proclaimed liberty. The truth shall 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 
shall set you free. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, yet the truth will set you free. If the Son sets you free indeed, he's done it. There's the liberty and then freeing them, physically doing this through his miraculous power and the gospel work. He defeated at the cross of Calvary the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He basically took the warden and his prison guards and put them to shame. And for freedom, Christ has set us free. I love that. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We're not just hearing the gospel, which is a freeing message, by his power and might. He actually frees us through it, through the hearing and through the power and might of the Holy Spirit. He proclaimed it, and he actually carries it out. And also, Jesus proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. And I will reference a special verse that everyone knows. John 3, 16 to 17. You think about it. Jesus proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. We will call it the season of God's grace. Because it's not just a year as it was during the time of Jubilee. It is a period of time much longer than one year. Many, many centuries so far. To think in terms of John 3, 16 to 17. Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. The season of grace. John 3, 16, 17. For God so loved the world. Wow. Proclaiming the year of God's favor, the Lord's favors. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Man, if Jesus was proclaiming the, the vengeance alone and that's it, and everyone's damned and done, he wouldn't have proclaimed this verse, would he have? He wouldn't have said this passage. He wouldn't have said, God sent me to save lost sinners. We're in a time and a season of his favor and a season of his grace. He proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. Now, according to Luke 4, 16 to 22, Jesus didn't recite and claim for himself verses 2b through 4 of Isaiah 61. But that doesn't mean that those things would not be a part of his ministry or fulfilled by him and in him. Check this out. Did Jesus proclaim the day of vengeance of our God? Absolutely. For what on earth would people be pressed and taught to repent from? You think of Matthew 25 in verses 31 to 32. When the son, Listen to this, this is day of judgment here. Matthew 25, 31 to 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Judgment, separating groups. In verse 34, he says this to the repentant, to this to those who have faith. Come, you, are blessed, who, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then in verse 41, he will say this to the unrepentant, those who do not have faith, those who reject Jesus Christ. He will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Can you get a more clearer example of how Jesus proclaimed the vengeance of our God? Right there. He proclaimed what is to come, his kingdom and judgment, consistently. In fact, he proclaimed the coming kingdom more than any other subject or topic. And he also preached repentance. You only have to repent if you're headed towards something bad. And that would be, according to our text, judgment. So Jesus did do that. Did Jesus comfort all who mourn to some degree? 
All sorts of people? Absolutely. What had happened in Matthew 5, 4? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a promise from Jesus Christ directly. Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching the Beatitudes. Man, if you mourn over your sin, if you mourn over your condition, you will be comforted. You are blessed. Another great example would be in Luke 7, 36 to 50. This is just one example of this... You know, comforting those who mourn. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. I love it. Who was a sinner when she had learned that she, uh, he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. Brought an alabaster flask of, of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. And she even kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This is a woman who is shattered and broken over her sinful condition. She is actually identified as a sinner in the text here. And in verse 48, what did the Savior Jesus Christ do? Say, you know, you, you, just, you just stink at life and you just need to quit sinning. Did he not show her compassion? No, he actually said to her the most amazing thing that you could possibly say to someone that only he could say. And that is that, uh, woman, your sins are forgiven. You feel the guilt and shame over what you've been doing and how you've lived in your life. And I'm here to tell you that your broken-hearted spirit over what you've done shows repentance. And you here doing this to me, anointing me this way, shows faith. And guess what, dear lady? Your sins are forgiven. He comforted her who mourns. Are there a zillion other examples of this in Scripture? Are you kidding me? What about the other things Isaiah listed? He will grant to those who mourn in Zion beauty, gladness, and praise. He will make them oaks of righteousness who glorify them, uh, glorify him, the Father. Uh, the, the oaks of Zion, of righteousness of Zion, will receive and rebuild the promised land. They will have this ministry. These things have yet to be fulfilled for the Jewish people by Jesus the Savior. But that doesn't mean that he hasn't begun to build his kingdom and use the church to bring about some level of restoration to humankind and to creation. By no means, when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he brought the kingdom of God with him. He said many times in his preaching, the kingdom is at hand. And his people, the church, engage in kingdom ministry. He has given us a ministry similar to what he's going to give to these oaks of Zion, if you will. He's given us a ministry similar. We proclaim the gospel, which is the message of the kingdom. We baptize new believers, and that symbolizes submission to King Jesus, who is the king of the kingdom, and it symbolizes citizenship in his kingdom. We celebrate communion, which is a foretaste of our future supper in the Savior's kingdom. These are all glimpses and pictures of things that we do. These means of grace are all examples of how we're kind of carrying out this kingdom ministry and work today. The church, my friends, is the physical manifestation of the Savior's kingdom on earth right now. When you see the church, you see the future kingdom. This body of believers and kingdom people and worshiping and loving each other and peace and unity in these things. That's what you're seeing. When you see the church, you should see the coming kingdom, the kingdom that's under construction now. 
We could easily sum it all up with this. The Savior is building his kingdom. And the church will receive it in all its fullness when he returns. In the meantime, we are to love him, trust him, and serve him. And every day, the Savior adds new members to his kingdom. The ministry that we've been talking about didn't just happen when Jesus came. He's continuing to fulfill it and do it through his church, through the power of the Holy Spirit. These things are continuing. Every day he adds new members to his kingdom. Jesus is saving people globally. There are revivals happening in China and other places. I think maybe we're on the precipice of one here in this nation. Who knows? And his kingdom is growing and advancing one person at a time. And so we wait for his glorious second appearing. When he returns, he will gather his church and defeat all his enemies. And he will consummate and fully establish his kingdom, which will stand forever. We thought that Christmas was about Santa and about presents. No, friend. It's about the Savior King who came down to us from heaven and took on flesh as a baby. Did all that I've talked about and more and is coming back to bring completion to what he has begun. That's what Christmas is about. A few closing questions just to ponder. Do you celebrate Christmas? Why? Why do you celebrate it? For the very reasons that we've talked about this morning? Because our Savior King has come? Meek and mild as a baby. Didn't end at a manger, did it? A feeding trough. He grew up as a young man serving the Lord as God. He was a teenager. Became a young adult. Lived a life of perfect righteousness and holiness, serving God and God alone. Entered the ministry at 30. 30 plus years old, obeyed perfectly, earned a level of righteousness that we could never achieve on our own, ever, ever. Took our sin upon his perfect body, died as the Lamb of God on Calvary, was placed in a wealthy man's tomb but death couldn't hold him in three days he rose he conquered sin Satan, death and hell that's Christmas why do you celebrate do you do it in humility and in reverence to God in light of what he's done and accomplished on your behalf? 
Or is it about Santa? It's about presence. The question to ask is, do you belong to the Savior? Jesus Christ, do you belong to his kingdom? He came and initiated his kingdom on earth. It is advancing. It is growing. And one day he will come. Do you live as a kingdom member, as a person who is submitted to him as king, submitted to his rule and reign, obeying his commands, the edicts, things that he has put forth, his precepts of loving him, loving others, loving your brothers and sisters, providing for those who have nothing, caring and loving for the church? Do you live your life in a way that reflects the kingdom? Because it's here. And if you're in Christ, you're a part of his kingdom. And you should be living as the king has instructed. Maybe there's someone in this room today that that does not know the Savior. Well, he has made himself known to you. You have heard about him. He is the reason for Christmas. He is who we've been speaking about this morning. Not just since I started preaching, but since we gathered, we started talking about him. You've heard. And the fact of the matter is, friend, that without him, you will remain in sin. You will remain under Satan. You will remain in bondage to sin, Satan, and to this fallen world. And God is going to judge and punish you. And you will perish. But the Savior can deliver you, just as he did me. Jesus says, or said, and I think he says today so loud and clear because his ministry is ongoing. He says to each of us, repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your self-effort and turn to the one who earned salvation for sinners, Jesus Christ. Believe that he died for you. Believe that he was buried for you. And believe that he rose from the grave for you. have a moment in communion just to reflect on the truths that we've heard. I want you to ponder Christmas and why you celebrate it. Maybe, maybe some have gotten off track and been more of a consumer than anything else this time of year. It's pretty easy to do. Maybe forgot what it's really about. Got caught up in just the crazy shopping and buying and giving gifts. You know, so often we give gifts. Is it a gesture of love? Certainly. But so often we give gifts for the reason of trying to earn someone's love, someone's favor, someone's acceptance. I think that's why consumerism is so rampant in our country, that people are trying to buy each other off because we're sinners. Without Christ, what do we have? 
only other sinners. That ain't good, right? Maybe you've gotten caught up in that this year. I don't know. I don't know where you're at. Just ponder what we've talked about, and do not forget what the elements represent. He came and as a baby. done something you could never do for yourself. And you need to remember that, that it's Christ. It's all him. Remember what those elements represent, his broken body and his spilt blood for the remission of your sin to bring you into a new covenant. Unlike the days of old, God gives to his children today the spirit permanently. That is a ministry of God's grace today. The day of Pentecost. He sent his spirit and the spirit would come upon those who love Jesus Christ and remain never to be taken like in the Old Testament. We need to rejoice in the fact that we have the Holy Spirit. It's because of what Jesus did that we have the Holy Spirit. Father, Thank you for this time and for your word. It's exciting to know that 700 plus years before you sent the Savior that you spoke so clearly about what he would be like in Isaiah 61. You gave us a foretaste of who he would be and what he would be like and what he would do. And we're so thankful for that. It's just a total affirmation on the Gospels and on the New Testament, proving that it is true, equally true. We are so thankful for what you said so long ago and what you did 2,000 years ago when you sent the Christ. And we're so thankful for his ministry, ministry of reconciliation binding up broken-hearted folks, proclaiming the good news to poor people like us. We may not all be physically poor, but we are spiritually bankrupt. You've set us free. We were captives under sin's spell, under the curse of death, under Satan's control, under the teachings and philosophy of this world. You've delivered us. You have caused us to pass from darkness to light. How marvelous. Your ministry is amazing. We thank you for it. May we take these elements in remembrance of what Christ did. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. Our freedom, our life, for now and for all eternity. We thank you and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Help yourselves.